I am back from the Holy Land. Oh my God. What an experience. In fact, I prepared a one-hour slideshow. We can turn off the lights and show. <laughs> Not just kidding. Um, I felt so much love for you, this church while I was there. There's so much religious um, conflict, obviously, in Jerusalem and Israel. And there's so little expression of anything like progressive Christianity. Like I was with an Episcopal group, you know, the Episcopal Church is a kind of a progressive denomination here in the United States. Well, there's an Episcopal Church in Israel, but like my wife is an Episcopal priest, she had to have a man with her while she was presiding over the Eucharist in the Episcopal Church that she did it in because it's like not okay let alone there were a few uh, gay members on, on the uh, trip and, you know, like, that's not okay in, in like, cr the Christian sector of, of, uh, of the Middle East. And it's like, oh my gosh, it's so important what we're doing. It's so important that we succeed. It's so important that this spreads. I, I, I put a little thing, and I went to the Western Wall, you know, it's the second temple, the last part of the second temple that Jesus was at remaining. And people go there and they pray and they put little prayer requests on a piece of paper and stick it into the wall. That was one of my prayer requests. This has to work, you know, boom, put it into the wall. It's like a thin spot. So I got a bad cold there too. So I'm trying to not get excited about the material because if I get excited, then... I might go into a coughing jag. If that happens, maybe Cassie and the band can come back up and just play a song. It'll be over in five minutes. So, The title today in our monster series is What the Devil is Satan About? So um, last Sunday, Emily began our Monsters of the Bible series. Emily is such a Bible nerd. I did not come up with this idea. This is totally Emily's idea. Let's have a series on the monsters of the Bible. Okay. <laughs> and Emily last Sunday covered some doozies like, like Rabasu, the crouching demon. I didn't even know about that one. Um, and it's true, these monster-like figures pop up in, in the text uh, from time to time to our great like mystification and consternation. What's this all about? And not a little like modern condescension. You know, like what would we expect from an ancient book, you know, primitive belief systems. Of course, there would be like monsters and weird figures and giants and things like that. We, we totally forget that monsters have always been a staple of literature and art and film to the present day. And what's it about? Well, like we're all a little bit over our heads, aren't we? Um, we're trying to make sense of a world that has some pretty terrifying elements to it. So we are fascinated by vampires and by uh, zombies and orcs and snakes and other mythical creatures that pop out of our psyche to scare the living daylights out of us. And this has to have some function in art, right? Um, it, it's almost as if by naming the monsters, we're trying to face in our waking hours the things that terrify us at nighttime and kind of get used to, like we can deal with these terrifying things. So it, it sounds a little bit stupid to say, but art and literature are legitimate ways of dealing with real things 
that we face that are just a little bit outside of our like rational comprehension, especially things having to do with the mystery that we call evil but can't really explain. So today I'm not going to mess with any minor, minor monsters. Uh-uh-uh. No minor monsters. I'm going for the big kahuna. In Hebrew, Satan. In Greek, Diabolos, devil. Where the devil did Satan come from? Yeah. <laughs> and what reality in our world is Satan about, is my question. Now, I want to begin with a um, brief history of Satan in Scripture. And you're going to notice that I'm going to use two different pronunciations. When I say Satan, I'm referring to the Hebrew Satan, which is not a proper noun. It's more of a function or a thing. And then occasionally I'll say Satan, meaning like a personified figure of Satan. So a brief history of Satan in Scripture has to be quite brief because there's like no origin story for a being named Satan. Um, the Italian poet Dante in the 14th century uh, created a work of fantasy fiction called The Inferno. And this spawned most of like the popular imagination about Satan. So Dante portrays Satan as a giant demon uh, frozen mid-breast in ice at the center of hell, like the ninth circle of hell, I think. Satan has three faces and a pair of bat-like wings affixed to each of his three chins. But in scripture, there's like no, there's nothing like that. It's all very, very sketchy. The original term in the Hebrew, as I said, uh, is simply Satan, which just means accuser. Uh, the Greek equivalent of that, remember the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible was written in Hebrew, in Hebrew language. The New Testament was written in Greek. So that in the New Testament, more often than seeing Satan or Satan, you see diabolos in the Greek or devil. So they're roughly equivalent terms. They both basically mean accuser or slanderer. In the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible, um, this term mostly refers to a function, something more like a role than to a proper name. So that the, the literal in the Hebrew is hasatan. That's the, the article that means the Satan, meaning someone who's fulfilling the function of an accuser. Um, often it's like a prosecutor in a courtroom scene, like a heavenly courtroom scene. The book of Job, which doesn't even pretend to be historical, it's in, it's in the Hebrew Bible, begins with this kind of famous scene of like the heavenly court, and, the, and there's like these, these other beings that are part of the heavenly court, and there's an accuser there who makes accusations against Job and, and God and the accuser interact, and that kind of sets the scene for the story. But that heavenly vision scene that opens the uh, book of Job is then mirrored in what happens on earth between Job and his so-called friends. You know, they understand his misfortune as punishment from God, and so they feel like it's their job to convince him of what he's done wrong in order to understand his 
punishment from God. And it's just sort of like if you have a roommate and you wake up and you say, I have, a, I have a horrible cold. And the roommate says, well, why didn't she use that hand sanitizer I gave her, gave you, you know, in your Christmas stocking? And it's like, well, it's your fault that you've got a cold. Well, this only, it was much worse in the book of Job. So the problem with fixating on Satan as like scary spirit being, like Dante's Satan, is that we lose the Hebrew, the Bible focus on the function called Satan. And so it's the, the itness, the thingness, not the whoness uh, of Hasatan that's really significant. So the real question is not who is Satan, but what does Hasatan in Scripture signify? What does it reveal? about how human beings interact with each other, what reality in our world is Satan a reference to in the Bible? And I think one of the um, foundational texts for understanding this, uh, the, the various versions of Satan appear in this, is Psalm 109. Psalm 109, you can pull it up on your phone if you, if you want, if the... Wi-Fi can handle that. Um, but it goes like this. God of my praise, do not be silent. For the wicked's mouth, the mouth of deceit, has opened against me. They spoke to me with lying tongue, and words of hatred swarmed around me. They battled me for no cause. In return for my love, they accuse me. That's the Hebrew Satan in verb form, though my prayer is for them. So he knows these people. He loves these people. These are like family kind of people to the psalmist, and they offer me evil in return for good and hatred in return for my love. So he's being betrayed by a group of people who have turned on him. And then there follows in Psalm 109 a long speech of the accu accusations of the accusers. Um, quoting a group of people that were close to him who have become an accusing mob. It goes like, they say, appoint a wicked man. Let an accuser, that's the noun form of Satan, stand at his right. When he is judged, let him come out guilty and his prayer be an offense. Um, you know, have you ever heard that one before? God won't accept the prayers of this group or that group or whatever. Let his days be few. His children become orphans. His wife a widow. May his children wander and beg, driven out from the ruins of their homes. This is this guy's friends or family or connected people who have turned on him and now they are just accusing him as a kind of mob. And it's interesting, that's like 13 verses, the... the speech of the mob and they were like seared in the memory of the psalmist right <laughs> to just to put that all in word form why do these words of accusation register so powerfully well because our belonging to groups is key to our survival so our brain is specially tuned in to accusing words from other people because they signal a threat to our belonging to the group. And the way evolution has worked and our bodies work is that if we're expelled from a group, it feels to us like we're, we're, our very life 
is on the line. This is all about survival. So this is a very, very powerful thing in the human experience. In the remainder of Psalm 109, the besieged psalmist cries out to God for help to save him from this accusing mob. It's a very important psalm because it's applied to Jesus in the Gospels, who, as he's undergoing this experience, Psalm 109 is evoked. Uh, like in John 15, as he's getting, as the crucifixion is drawing near, John quotes, they encircle me with words of hate and attack me without a cause. That's from Psalm 109. So Psalm 109 is like foundational for understanding the function of Satan in Scripture. Luke 4, okay, now we're in the New Testament, one of the four Gospels, the Gospel of Luke. Luke 4, chapter 4, is like a tutorial on the function of Hasatan as the, like the agent of scapegoating. So Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Luke is the author of Luke and the book of Acts. Book of Acts is all about, features Paul and tells the story of Paul's conversion three times. He's the great, like, he's the ringleader of like a very early scapegoating effort to the uh, first Jesus followers. And he's, he's converted from his scapegoating ways and as if that's like a key to what conversion is in the, New, in the New Testament. So Luke is very sensitive to the crowd dynamics that go into scapegoating. So Luke 4 is like a tutorial on that. And there's um, three scenes in Luke chapter 4. I've got the middle scene that I passed out for you that we'll look at a little more closely. But the first scene is the Judean wilderness. Not too, it would be within sight of Jerusalem where Jesus has this uh, mystical experience of Hasatan, the devil, um, that was probably a series of visions that Jesus had out in the wilderness. Remember the spirit after Jesus was baptized kind of led him into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. He fasted, and he's in the Judean wilderness probably. Now, I get to say, I was in the Judean wilderness. <laughs> Emily used to say this all the time about things. I'm like, China and Jordan River. Well, I was in the Judean wilderness within eyeshot of Jerusalem. Oh, praise me. And I brought back some rocks from the Judean wilderness. I'm going to pass these out. Caroline definitely gets one of these rocks because Caroline likes these rocks. So if you could pass out these rocks for display, um, you can, if you're the last one to hold the rock, you can put it on the altar when you, when you come back. If you really want a rock, ask me, and if I've got enough, I'll give you one. That's a Judean rock. Kind of looks like the rocks you would see in a Walmart parking lot. That's how special they are. <laughs> <laughs> but it's from the Judean wilderness, probably in the region where Jesus was. Now, if you were in the Judean wilderness, like me, <laughs> you would see that this place is barren. I mean, it's not like the desert around Phoenix, you know, with cactuses and wildflowers and animals all running around. It's barren. Um, it's beautiful. 
I mean, it's like rolling hill after rolling hill with valleys going through it. Like if any scene that you'd saw, you'd probably see like 50 of these rolling mound-like hills with valleys. And it's uniform. And it all looks like, the, like those rocks is, are everywhere. Just dirt, dust, and rocks in the Judean wilderness. It's a stark place. The beauty of it is stark. So it's hot in the day, it's cold at night, it's either the blazing sun or the chilly cold, it's either rainy season or it's drought, dry season, everything is like black, white, it's a stark kind of beauty. So it became the ultimate place to go to have vision. So you would unplug from all the stimulation. You can't have visions and tune in to transcendent realities when you're, you know, on your phone, right? <laughs> you, you have to unplug to do that. And the Judean wilderness, man, that was the place to do it. So Jesus went there for 40 days, 40 nights fasting. So he's even withdrawing from eating. And he's in this barren place. And well, hello, of course, he's going to have visions. And they're going to be very vivid visions. And what's featured in these visions is this figure, the devil, Diabolos, who is a, the Greek equivalent to Satan. And the thing I want to point out in Luke, um, Luke's account of this, because the one in Matthew is a little bit different, Luke's account ends with the devil taking Jesus to the Temple Mount and urging him to throw himself off. So it'd be like the highest place in Israel, like throw yourself off the Temple Mount. That's a little clue to the reader what Satan is about. Satan is about having people thrown off a cliff. It's the most common form of scapegoating in the ancient world, is to throw someone, a crowd gathers, they push the person, and then they drive the person off the cliff Conveniently, no one person is responsible for it, right? So the crowd gets to be innocent, and this is, uh, this is how scapegoating happened in the ancient world. This is how scapegoating mobs roll. So the wilderness is preparing Jesus for his public ministry, right, in the gospel. So he's baptized, he's driven out into the wilderness, he has his vision quest, and then boom! Rumors start circulating about him. He draws crowds. He goes in the Galilee, probably to Capernaum, right around there. He's healing people. And his next stop is his hometown, Nazareth. His hometown synagogue. It's a, today it would be an Israeli city, north of the West Bank. So it's not under occupation. Um, it's the, the West Bank is west of the Jordan River, but it's the east side of Israel, so it's a little confusing when you look at the map. So today, uh, Nazareth would be like 77,000 people. It's an Arab-Israeli town, um, two-thirds Muslim, one-third Christian. It's really one of the strongholds of Christians who are a very much shrinking minority in that area. Uh, Bethlehem is in the West Bank, also went to Bethlehem, and Bethlehem is under occupation. So it's surrounded by a wall, checkpoints. Uh, the people in Bethlehem um, have to pay taxes to the state of Israel, but they don't get to vote. So they're like under occupation in Bethlehem. And that's actually more like the situation of Nazareth, 
when Jesus was growing up in Nazareth. It was under Roman occupation, only it was much smaller. It was like less than 150 people. So like, we, you know, we'll, we'll have 150 people at church on a Sunday. That's a, it's not a big, big group as towns go. And this is how the Nazareth thing, and you might want to tune in to the, to the sheet if you'd like to follow along. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as he was accustomed to do, he entered the synagogue on the day of the Sabbath. So remember, he spent his childhood in Nazareth. We stayed at a, um, the Sisters of Nazareth. It was like a Catholic church in Nazareth, modern-day Nazareth. And they took us down. If you want to go old, you have to go down in Israel. And there was this site of like they had discovered a, a, um, a home, a small home from the Jesus period. So we go down there and there it is. And I'm thinking, well, it's 150 people, 70 of them would have been kids and most of them would have been cousins. And Jesus was probably running around in this, like, in this space that I'm in. And he, he grew up as a kid in this town, which is really important background for this text that we're looking at. He spent his childhood in this small town because what unfolds in Nazareth is a scapegoat event, the first in the Gospels. Jesus, at the end of it, is driven from his home by people who knew and loved him and that he grew up with. And it was the same thing, trying to drive him off a cliff. What was going on? Well, first, let's just step back for a couple of things and say, this is not just some weird thing happening in the Bible. <laughs> that this is a common experience of human beings in a messed up world, right? To hear in our congregation many people who have been driven from their homes and their families in various ways for who they are or for who they love. Or here in our congregation there are people who the color of their skin means that they're actually not very comfortable driving up north. And there are whole places in the state of Michigan, in the country, where if the color of your skin isn't right, like you just avoid those places because you have the experience when you go there, you're under suspicion, you're under scrutiny, people are watching you, they're watching you with a critical eye, and you drive five you know, miles under the speed limit when you're in these places, and it's, and it's like being in occupied territory in, in the Middle East. So this is a very common experience. So scene two, which you have in your hands there, is a tutorial in the fickleness of crowds, how they can go from friendly and festive to hostile in a heartbeat. Now, let me just tell you one other story about this. Do you sports fans remember the Cubs in 2003? You'd have to be under 40, probably. Um, the, Cubs in t you know, the Cubs were like the definition of the biblical term of vain hope. Like, they, had, they hadn't won a World Series in forever. And in 2003, they, they had a team. And they were going into the playoffs, and they were playing the Marlins in the playoffs in Chicago. And they're, and they're four outs away from winning the series and going to the next round. And there's a pop fly ball that goes into the left field uh, foul territory. The Cubs outfielder runs. He's there. He's ready to make the catch. And there's this fan, this Cubs fan named Steve... Bartman, and of course he's looking at the ball and he reaches for the ball and he deflects the ball from being caught by his own team 
oh my gosh, that happy crowd, they just turned into a scapegoating mob. I mean, they're, they're chatting literally, excuse my language, asshole. The whole crowd is chanting this for Steve, and, and people are throwing stuff. He has to get escorted by the police out of the, out of the stadium. Someone um, recognizes who he is, and online they, they publish where he lives, and he has to have police protection for weeks. Now, in 2016, when the Cubs made it to the World Series, the Cubs felt bad about what was happening to this poor fan, you know? And so they invited to him to throw out the first pitch in 2016. He's like, hell no. I do not need that attention. So if you've, if you've experienced this, you, you understand that crowds can be dangerous places and you do not want to be under scrutiny, under attention in a crowd. Now, if you're a privileged person, yeah, give me that ball, I'll throw it, or hey, look at me, you know. But, so it's a whole different experience depending, and Steve Bartman is a great example of that. So I want to read this uh, text with a sensitivity to the crowd dynamics, and I picture this happening, this don't picture like a staid, frosty, English-speaking church-like setting, but it's just a more expressive, bordering on raucous kind of setting with people who all knew each other. And in his remarks, I think Jesus is responding to things he's hearing from the crowd. So can we read this? I'm gonna read it in this little bit more literal translation, but it's pretty close to what you got there. Um, Luke chapter four, verse 31. No, verse 17, sorry. Um, and he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up, and as he was accustomed to do, he entered the synagogue on the day of the Sabbath and stood up to read. And a scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and having opened the scroll, he found the place where it was written, A spirit of the Lord is upon me. Hence he has anointed me to announce good tidings to the destitute. He has sent me out to proclaim release to captives and sight to the blind, to send the downtrodden forth in liberty to proclaim the Lord's acceptable year. And having closed the scroll and returning it to the attendant, he sat, that was the way you taught, sitting, and the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were gazing at him. Now your translation, I think, says fixed on him, but the word is a little more ominous than that. It's more like staring at him. This translation says, gazing at him. Have you ever been in a crowd where someone is, the whole crowd is staring at you? You're like that's like a, a little bit like uncomfortable feeling to be under that kind of attention. And so there's a little suggestion here of there's some dynamics going on in this crowd. And it began by saying to him, today in your ears, this scripture has been fulfilled. And then all professed their admiration for him and were amazed at the word of grace coming out of his mouth. So crowds are mimetic. Like they, they flow in, in directions based on imitation and things get exaggerated in crowds. So positive things get exaggerated in crowds and negative things get exaggerated in crowds. And so there's like a wave of admiration that goes through the crowd, but then there's this ominous thing. Is this man not Joseph's son? So I picture it kind of a cacophonous, you know, like kind of a noisy, ruckus thing. And Jesus is tuning in to some, the fact that there are some people in this admiring crowd who are like, now, wait a minute. 
Why is he getting all this attention? <laughs> Isn't this just Joseph's son? And he said to them, Surely you will quote me this parable, physician, heal yourself. The things we heard were happening in Capernaum, that other town he was in. Do them here as well in, our native, in your native country. So he's sensing in the hometown boys that they have a sense of, I guess we'd call it entitlement. You know, like, we're the privileged people. We're your hometown people. You owe us a few miracles. He does not like that. He does not like that entitled kind of thing. And he's, he's kind of calling it out in the crowd. Um, and he said to them, Amen, I tell you, no prophet is accepted at his own country. And I tell you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. Elijah did some of his miracles earlier right in that region. When the sky was sealed up for over three years and six months, as a great famine took place over the land, and to none of them was Elijah sent except to a widowed woman of Sarepta in Sidon. And there were many lepers in Israel during the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them were cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. So he's like saying, you're not entitled to any of this. And all in the synagogue were filled with rage when they heard these things. So they, they, there's this wave of admiration, and then it turns on the dime, just like the Cubs stadium, into like a wave. They were all filled with rage when they heard these things. And rising up, they drove him outside the city and led him to the edge of the mountain on which their city was built so as to throw him down. But he passed through the midst and went away. Wow. What a searing experience this must have been for Jesus to have grown up in a small town, to have begun his public ministry, and this happens to him in his hometown from the people he knows and he loves, and he goes to Capernaum under that cloud of very personal rejection that he's experienced. This is like the vision in the wilderness with Satan, the slanderer, the accuser, is kind of letting him know the dynamics that are gonna unfold in his ministry. Now we have scene three. Um, it's a ruckus in the Capernaum synagogue, and that's Luke chapter 4, verse 31, 36. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee. It's right, on the, right around the Sea of Galilee, which I, I was there. I brought a rock from the <laughs> Sea of Galilee. I almost ate that for a leader's sermon. And he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astounded at his teaching because his speech had power. And in the synagogue, there was a man having the spirit of an impure demon, and he shouted out in a loud voice, Ah, what is there between us and you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked it, not him, but it, saying, Be silent and come out from him. And the demon, throwing him down in their midst, came out from him, do, uh, doing him no injury. And amazement came over everyone, and they spoke to one another, saying, what the heck is going on here? This is something else. Now, we as modern people go like, oh, come on. But, you know, to be under occupation, and that's what was happening in this part of Israel at this time, they were under Roman occupation. So they had 16, 17-year-old, 18-year-old Romans from all over the empire, empowered with weapons, and having power over, like, everybody 
like the women were not safe if you were under occupation for obvious reasons. The men were not safe because they were under suspicion constantly. You remember in New York City this came up because Michael Bloomberg is running for president. Well, Michael Bloomberg supported what, what was called stop and frisk. So there were some years not that long ago in, in New York City where a police officer could stop and frisk anyone that they just had a funny feeling about. And don't you know that maybe four times as many people of color were stopped and frisked? Now, can you imagine what it's like to be stopped and frisked by a police officer? Like, hey, excuse me, young man, you know, um, do you have any drugs? Uh, do you have any weapons? Uh, no, sir, I'm just, I'm just coming home from school. Uh, well, let me, I need to frisk you. Now, I've had like two little encounters with police officers when I did something kind of wrong. One, I didn't, pay a, I didn't pay a ticket for my dog being out, and the dog catcher found it. And, and two police officers came to my home and took me down to the Ann Arbor police station. I knew it wasn't a major crime, but I felt really like bad driving with the police officers to City Hall. I felt like, in my mind, I'm thinking, what horrible thing have I done? You know, like I felt, I just felt guilty. There's something when someone in power accuses you of things, you, in, you just naturally internalize it. And so this is what's going on. Some, some anthropologists in, in regions under occupation like this have noted that people under occupation develop symptoms like this man had. And what it is they think is internalizing the accusation of the occupation forces. Because often the name of the demon is connected to the occupation force, like legion in the Gospels. Legion was like a Roman battalion. So that one demonized man whose demon was named Legion, that's reflecting this. When the man says, have you come to destroy us, that's a clue. That maybe he has internalized the accusing mob voices, either of the occupation forces or his hometown synagogue because there was something about him that he was, you know, n not viewed positively. And yes, Jesus had come to destroy and to disperse scapegoating mobs, right? Yeah. I mean, the woman caught in adultery, she's surrounded by a little scapegoating mob of people who are, who are challenging her. What does Jesus do? He writes in his finger in the sand. He comes up with this great genius idea let those who are without sin cast the first stone they all drop their stones and walk away he dis successfully dispersed the scapegoating mob yes he came to destroy scapegoating mobs take away i'm bringing it home now people focusing on satan <laughs> as a proper name for a scary spirit can distract us from the more important question what in human dynamics and society does Satan signify? The monster of Satan is us when we're operating in this accusing mob mode. Something comes over human beings in groups that is kind of beyond us. And we have to resist, not yield to that something when it comes over us. So, let's go back to the synagogue. What was Jesus saying when, that, that launched all this ruckus in his hometown synagogue? 
He was saying the spirit of God, it's actually a spirit, a spirit of God is upon me to set captives free, to reco- for, for the recovery of sight to the blind. The scapegoat mechanism is something that's unconscious. We're blind to it. He's coming to deliver people from this, this horrible bondage experience. And if we've been subjected to this, Jesus represents the God who is our defender. If we have been subjected to this kind of treatment at any point in our life, Jesus represents the God who is our defender against this kind of experience of being under hyper-scrutiny, of being watched, of being accused of different things, which is just, that's just standard fare for minority groups in societies like ours, and we see it happening at scale today, right out, out so obviously in the open. And the Spirit of God that is on Jesus is the Spirit that defends people against that. And the Spirit that enlightens people who are part of those mobs to see what they're doing so they can repent and turn away and not participate in that kind of stuff anymore. And that's why in John's Gospel, Jesus gives a special name to the Spirit that was on him, right? And that name is Defender of the Accused, Paraclete. The unique name Jesus gave to the Spirit that was on him. So, I'm done. Let us um, have a time of quiet reflection. And then I think maybe I'm going to ask Emily and Caroline for communion. If you could... I brought special holy oil from <laughs> from Israel with all the like cinnamon and nard and all that stuff. So if your skin is sensitive, you might want to pass on it. But it's it's beautiful oil, and I'm just going to ask them to anoint anyone who wants to be anointed as you come forward for communion, for the spirit that was on Jesus to be on you, for defense, for protection, for um, freedom uh, from this and. I would suggest if you want, um, to, uh, if you could put, if anyone wants it, like put it on their hand so they can smell it. Because it's a beautiful smell. And it communicates something, I think, to us about the way God sees us to smell that beautiful, that beautiful smell. Um, and so that can, you can take with you. I'm going to skip the quiet reflection and just going to go straight to the, uh, straight to communion. Let this happen, or offering, right. Whatever it is that you do here at Blue Ocean Church.